My name's Tom. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here. I have the privilege of leading the South, the, the south Site, uh, as well as the overall church. And uh, it's so good to be together. And it's, is it just me or is it marginally warmer? Yes, the Jordans are nodding. I think just a, maybe a degree, just a degree. We're on the way into spring. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Um, very warm welcome to you if you're new here. Uh, uh, we as a church really want to just continue to put ourselves in the shoes of those who are new here. Often coming to a church is actually surprisingly weird and intimidating. I was an atheist when I first came here and it was fairly strange and it still remains fairly strange, but hopefully in a good way. But we do hope that you are feeling loved, welcomed, connected in. That's our deep desire. If you have a Bible, let's jump to uh, the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. And today we are we're just kind of crossing the halfway point in this series. Today we're at Galatians 4. And um, <laughs> the thing about Galatians is there's so much that you could speak about. There's so much that it's like it kills me because I want to preach a whole world on that verse. And then there's that verse and that verse. It's so wonderfully juicy and meaty. Let me just state the obvious. Please do read it, read it, read it all week. You'll get so much more out of it if you come on the Sunday having read it yourself because the concepts are often a little different to what a person in the 21st century in East Kent is used to thinking about. So the more that you're living in it and trying to live it in your minds and your imaginations, uh, it's, it's something that's a really positive thing. Who here, just a little quick survey, has found the small group notes which are different to usual because they're very much based on the Bible rather than just the sermon? Who's found those helpful? Look at that. I think it's been a winner of a shift for us, and I'm very excited about that. Today in Galatians 4, if you don't know this chapter, I think the most simple way of getting your head around uh, much of it is this simple but incredibly, actually profound idea. It's profound if you're a non-Christian, and it's really profound as well if you call yourself a Christian, is that you might be rich, you might be poor, you might be old, you might be young, you might be good-looking. You might be less good looking. You might be of a certain class. You might be black. You might be white. You might. Do you know, actually, there's only two types of people in this world. You're either a slave or a son. That's what this chapter says. And you might think, what? This man's bonkers. Well, maybe. Quite possibly, ask my wife, she'll probably agree with you, but, but actually, that is what, in essence, this chapter says. And this is the really amazing thing, is that I think for us, when we think about things like slavery and the awfulness of slavery, right, I think there's probably few things that would unite everyone together more than a united hatred of slavery, yeah? It's a horrible thing when we think about the abolition of slavery and, and the getting rid of it and the kind of, the, the horrors of even just thinking a little bit about slavery, you know, there's no, there's no doubt that in a room like this, if I was to say who here is so pleased that it's something that in many ways has been eradicated and where, where it still exists, people are wanting to see it go. We, we would say, yes, it's a horrible thing. But here's the twist that this chapter sneaks up on us and says. It's like it whispers up to you, even if you're a Christian here today, you might think you're free. But it is the easiest thing in the world to actually 
functionally still be a slave. That's what it says. It's so shocking. And Paul here, when he's writing to this group of Christians, this group of Christians who lived in this place called Galatia, which was like modern-day Turkey, he is yearning that they would not slip back into slavery. And what we're going to do first of all, we're going to look at a bit of, the, of this chapter which describes how on earth what I've just said can be true. <laughs> Before you start throwing rocks at me and thinking, you're crazy Tom, I'm not a slave. Well, let's just see what Paul does, how he describes this, this slide back into subtle slavery, just to get all the S's in there. The slide back into subtle, it can so easily happen is what he says when our eyes are off this portrait of Jesus. But then what he also does, he doesn't just warn us against something that is so scary that it can be true. He also, he, it's like his heart cry as a father yearns that we would not just try and avoid something. The Bible doesn't ever do that. You know that? It doesn't just say, warning, warning, don't do that. And you go, oh, great, okay, I'm freaked out now. So I'm just trying my life to avoid it. It never does that. It does warn us. There is the stick. But then he always, in the next breath, gives us this juicier carrot, a beautiful carrot that says, be warned about that, but dive into thinking about this. Yeah, there is the challenge of discipleship. It is there, but the invitational side of Jesus, following Jesus, is so majestic and glorious. So we're going to try and look at those both elements. The warning that we see about how can we seriously slide back into slavery, but then we're going to look at this wonderful, juicy bit in this part of Scripture. And actually, I want to I wanna start with a bit of the, of the Scriptures that come slightly later in the chapter, which I think will become obvious, and then come back to some of the, the verses earlier. So if you've got chapter 4 open, turn with me to verse 12. Verse 12. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, I thank you. Your Word is living and active. Thank you that it is relevant even though the context it was written is so different, but it's so relevant. Lord, I just pray for hearts across this room right now to be absolutely ambushed by the God of the universe, nothing less. Lord, we've bothered to come. We're here. We could be doing something else. We want to meet with you. Amen? We want to meet with you, God. We love you, and your word is like nothing else. In this world that's being lied to, we come to hear truth. Lord, it might sting, it might hurt, but it is so good. You are so good to us, Lord. And I just pray for every heart now. The Bible so warns about how you listen. Don't be passive. Don't go into autopilot. Let's listen with ears of faith. Actively, Lord, thinking about what we're about to hear and uh, mixing it with faith so that we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all then, buckle up, let's look how on earth can it be true that we could be slaves without realizing it. Okay, first of all, uh, verse 12. Brothers and brothers and sisters, I entreat you. Okay, that's a strong, a strong beginning here. It's not a little suggestion, it's like, please listen to what I'm about to say to you. Become as I am for I also have become as you are. Now, what is he saying? First of all, what he's saying is to this group of Christians who have slipped back into a type of slavery, which we'll look at in a moment, the first thing is this sort of highlighting verse right at the beginning. What you could summarize everything that he's saying is, become as me, i.e. a Christian who is actually still living in freedom. 
I want you to become as I am. You're not like that now. You've slipped back into slavery. I want you to become like I am. Because, remember, he says, I became as you were. It's like he's reminding them, when I came to you as a Jew, I came to you non-Jews, and I became culturally and socially as much like you as I possibly could. Out of kindness and love. I wanted nothing to stand in the way of you hearing the truth that I had for you. Remember, he's saying, so look, I kind of did you a favor. And now he's saying, you know, not doing me a favor, but kind of. He's saying, for goodness sake, I want you to become like I am a free person. It's a summary, really, of all that we're going to look at. And then this is fascinating. This is a little window into actually how this whole church began. Starts off, next couple of verses are really beautiful. They're like positive. He reminds them of how it is that this whole thing happened. This love affair with Galatia, this love affair with East Kent began. He says, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Now, scholars discuss and debate what was this bodily ailment. And uh, those of you who here are hypochondriacs like, oh, interesting. I don't know. It could be anything. We're not sure. It seems that maybe it was a type of fever. That's a possibility. We don't know. But this is what happened is it seems like he wasn't planning on going long term to this part of the world. It looked like he was going through Galatia and he got sick. That's what they suggest he's getting at. Uh, He got sick. And though my condition was a trial to you, he's so true, isn't it? You know what it's like living with someone who's ill? Is it just me? You liars. You know what it's like? I love that. It's so funny. Even though my condition was a trial to you, he said, you did not scorn me. I love it. Can you imagine if they did? You know, tell him off because he's ill. Or despise me. Wow, what amazing people. But look at this. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So this is the scene. Here he is, Paul He's on his way, temporarily, just cruising through Canterbury, just cruising through Whitstable. He gets struck down. Just as an aside, in life, God uses things that we would not choose to do amazing things. The churches began in Galatia because Paul was ill. Isn't that amazing? I bet they were relieved that he got ill. So just view your life now. Whatever, lots of you in this room are facing things. I wouldn't choose this. You might be ill or you might have a, something that's not, I want to progress through this thing and it won't change. Hey, sometimes it's because God wants you in that place for a bit longer because there's fruit to be had. Hey, he, he, it's the way he works. Paul was ill. He looked like he was failing. Bless him. It, we're going to see that he looks like he even couldn't see properly. He's weak, he's fragile, he feels like he's the rubbishiest Christian ever. He wants to get through it and onto somewhere else. But God has plans. And if you're here today and you feel weak and fragile and you're in a place and it doesn't feel comfortable and you think, oh, I just want to move on. Hey, listen, don't rush through those, discom- those discomfortable, those uncomfortable places. Don't rush through them. Because often those are the places that the Lord wants us to be. And look, I love this. He says, you received me. There I am puking my guts up. And I sort of, you know, managed to start talking about Jesus when I recovered. It's my translation. And I love the way they say, he received me as an angel of God. And he doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, you naughty things. I'm just a humble man. 
He kind of does that sometimes, doesn't he? Where, where people kind of end up worshipping Paul and other people. But this time he's like, it seems to be, it was a good thing. A messenger of God, an angel, angelos, it just means messenger. That's this amazing sense of Paul knew what I was doing was the work of God. Like angels are seen bringing the work of God and you receive me appropriately. That is awesome. That a man who was ill yet was not despised or scorned. He was received as an angel of God. As Jesus Christ, he says. As Christ Jesus. That's amazing. That's amazing that it seemed appropriate that they did that. They received him. Do we receive people in that way? So humble of them, so amazingly insightful that they did that. And he goes on. He then says, so what has become of your blessedness? I, how come you so loved me, high five, we were best friends, and then suddenly I'm hearing reports that you're turning your back on him. We've talked about this, haven't we? These Judaizers, which means these Jewish Christians, were following Paul around. Wherever he planted a church filled with grace, filled with this portrait of Jesus, they sneaked in. And they said, yes, we agree, but you must make sure that in addition to Jesus, there's this guy called Moses, and, and he was from the, the altar. He, he, he wrote some things that you need to also do in addition. And again and again and again, poor Paul, it's like the bane of his life. He births these churches in grace, and they get distorted by people coming in or from within, adding to the gospel, adding a, a should, do, ought kind of thing. And that's what he's saying. He says, have I now become someone that no longer brings you blessing? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So again, we, we can, we're guessing that maybe he's, his, his sickness meant he couldn't see properly. And they were like, oh, I love you so much. I want to take out my eyeballs and give them to you. I've often said that in my life. It's a phrase I often use. I love that you would have gouged out your eyes. That's vivid, isn't it? Come on, isn't it? Yes. It's great. I love it. I love this community. They're so dramatic. They're like gouging out their eyes and they hate him. You know, it's so typical of, of people. <laughs> Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Wow. Learning point. Whole sermon on that. Hold me back, Lord. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. Who is the they? These Judaizing leaders, yeah? These Jewish Christians who have come in, and this is the key. How, how after this wonderful start, did this slavery start to begin? One word sums it up. Flattery. Flattery. Let's read on it. It says this, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So this is what's happened. This is the first learning moment. How is it that they've started to slip into subtle slavery? It is that they were made much of. They were encouraged. I don't know exactly what these Jewish Christians said, but it would have been probably something like, oh, well done, you're so zealous, excellent. Now, now because you're so holy and special, let's just take you to the next level. 
Yeah, now start to have these additional things in your life. Now you need to start reading your Bible a lot. And you need to make sure that you do these certain things in church. And you need to make sure that you give this a much, this percentage, this kind of thing. You need to make sure that you're, you're doing X, Y, and Z. And this law came in, first of all, because it was flattering. It came through people who flattered them. They made much of you. Now listen, just hear that. Just hear that, because we can become people who are enslaved to other people and their desires for us through, ultimately, them flattering us and encouraging us. It could be, you might say, this is irrelevant to me, Tom. Well, just check your heart. Who is it that you would be most crushed by if they didn't approve of you? Would it be peers? Could it be your boss? Could it be your parents? Could it be your children? See, the media is a huge source of this counterfeit performance thing that we've been looking at again and again. The source of it, first of all, the source of this lie was flattering. These people, they made much of you. Paul's telling them the truth and they suddenly don't like him anymore. Oh, let's just keep listening to these nice leaders. And it says that they made much of them so that ultimately these Galatian Christians would make much of them. And that's how it works. That's how we get sucked away. I know people who have left this church because we do try and at times challenge, often. And sometimes they go, I don't like that. And they'll go somewhere else and they'll be like, oh, oh, I'm loved in this place. What means is actually that love never involves challenge. And that breaks my heart because that's not the heart of the Bible at all. God loves us enough to tell us sometimes where we need to change. Amen? But they don't like that. It's like a child having a tantrum. Oh, I don't like dad today. I'm going to go to mum. You know? That's what's happening. And it's tragic. But actually, not just the messengers were flattering. The message. What they were saying. You see, again, they, it says here in verse um, 10... You observe days, months, seasons, and years. And you think, what's going on here? This is them trying to attain to this Jewish law thing about certain days being special. And the thing about this is is that it's flattering. The idea that what you do could add to your holiness is very flattering. The idea that what you could do with your life will ultimately make you more impressive before God is the heart of what every other religion says. And actually, even non-religion, it's what it says. You get righteous through yourself. Self-righteousness, yeah? It's the big other alternative. Whatever label you want to add on, it's the only other alternative to Christianity. It's a self-focused thing. For them, it was observing days, months. For us, it takes loads of different forms. It takes us uh, in a direction that ultimately gets our eyes off God, our eyes onto ourselves. Let me ask you this. What do you need apart from Christ? Not just what do you want. What do you really need? What is it that if you don't have, creates in you anger? Or fear? Or worry? Because often those things that we really need are often the things that we've subtly actually become enslaved to. 
For them, he says, you observe days, months, seasons, and years. It's like they've, they've gone from Jesus is enough to, well, I've got to do these things now because they make me feel good about my life. And these leaders are, are encouraging me and flattering me and saying I'm doing well. So I need their approval and I need the approval of this new system of thought. And, and we might not be struggling with that, but I tell you what, look at your heart in an average week. And if you're anything like me, I suddenly see, just this week, I, I, was, I had a meeting coming up. And I thought, do you know what? <laughs> I'm actually really, I'm really fearful. What? I'm going to be free. <laughs> I'm preaching this on Sunday, God. And I feel, oh, I, feel, I feel enslaved to fear about this meeting. And I suddenly thought, why is that? And i tell you why. It's because in my head, I needed that meeting to go a certain way for, in my head, it to be a success. I needed something more than Jesus. Do you see? If, and I, as soon as I saw it, I felt a br- like freedom started to come. I thought, wait a minute, what happens if it goes badly? I sort of mentally thought about it. I thought, well, actually, there's only so much I can do, right? Am I still righteous before God? Hallelujah, I am. And suddenly, through spotting the need that was driving this fear, I was able to actually begin the work of entering back into a place of real freedom. So what is it that you need? So often, for example, if you're a worrier, what's really going on, we talk about this a lot, is a, a need for some sense of control. It's not always linked, but often it's linked. If it's worry, if it's fear, if it's anger, if it's anger that you often feel, it's often linked with a need to do well. I often see that in my heart. The emotion that I feel in something is is actually because deep down I'm, I'm wanting something. In his brilliant book, From uh, Slavery to Sonship, something like that, Jack Frost describes, well worth buying, he describes some illustrations of the difference between being a slave, how we view the life when we've slipped into slavery, and when we are a son. He says this. He said, a slave sees God as a master whom we must appease continually. We feel we must pray more, read the Bible more, or work harder to earn God's notice. But a son, on the other hand, sees God as a loving father who accepts them unconditionally. We know the unconditional love is never based upon the performance of the one receiving it, but upon the nature of the one giving it. Slaves are insecure, but usually quite good at covering it up. They often strive to act right, do enough to please God and his blessings. And therefore, slaves rarely experience any inward peace or rest. Life for a slave is often filled with uncertainty and fears of trusting, abandonment, and intimacy. Whereas sons, in contrast, are at peace. And at rest in the Father's embrace. They know that their security in God does not depend on their behavior. But is based on the grace of God and the saving work of Jesus on the cross. Listen, slaves believe that they must be holy to be accepted and okay. Sons want to be holy. It's natural for sons and daughters to want to be just like their dad. You see the difference? 
goes, slaves seek comfort in counterfeit affections. This is a, an insightful one. A counterfeit, a de- we seek comfort in counterfeit affections, addictions, compulsions, escapism, busyness, hyper-religious activity, because we believe the busier we are, the happier we are, and the more worthy we are. <sighs> Sons find true comfort in times of quietness and rest. And they rest in the Father's presence and love. They've discovered, and that once being, having tasted of that place of rest, that the world of religiosity has to offer, it pales in comparison. Oh, I could go on. That's four out of 20. Which are we today, functionally? If you're a Christian, you are a son or daughter of God. And just to say with that phrase, son, don't get hung up if you're a lady here. The reason the Bible uses the word son there is because in Jewish culture, the firstborn son got the inheritance. So the Bible uses that term to help us all understand, male or female, you are, we are all sons of God. We are those who get the inheritance. Okay, that's the idea. It's not being sexist. So which are we today? Which are we function? If I was to ask your best friend, is she, is she in a place of rest? Is she in a place of seeing her peers, not through jealousy, but through a celebration of their blessings? Does he want to be holy or is he trying? Does that person see God as a master who they must work hard for as a father? If you're anything like me, I, I, I can so slip back into being a slave. And so we've got to finish by saying, well, Lord, what, we can see the warning. Paul gives us the warning. He's desperate for them not to go back into that. But Paul being Paul, he just... He just gives us delightful verses to also fix our gaze on him. So turn back a page or turn back a few verses in in chapter 4 at the beginning. At the beginning, first three verses, he has already been describing a similar idea. I won't go into, into it today, but this idea of slave. A young heir, despite one day getting everything in their early years, is a slave, effectively. There's no difference in many ways. He's been using that similar analogy. But then look with me in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Oh, wow. Where do I begin? There's so much here. I love these verses. He says, but, when often whenever you see the word but in the Bible, I love it, because God has spoken honestly and convictingly, and God is feeling, you're right, but there's this, it's almost like the smile that we so often feel, but when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son. I love that. We are, as Christians, eagerly anticipating the end of time, as it were, when Jesus returns and he makes all things new. Hallelujah. We wait for that. We yearn for that. We're excited about that. It is something that more and more we are aware of what it will be like. However, we must not ever overlook the enormity of what happened 2,000 years ago. What he's saying, the fullness of time. It's this almost idea of the childbirth moment. Month after month after month, those mums wait. 
for the little one. And then the fullness of time comes. And boom, out comes. Probably not boom, but you know what I'm saying. Out comes the little one. And there's celebration and there's joy after a few moments later. And there's... It's glorious, the fullness. It's this idea that for so many centuries, not a few years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the entire world was going round and round and round in a circle. We want to be holy. We feel like we should be holy. We have no way to be holy. We know that and that we're enslaved in it. Even if technically we're free, we're not free. The slave masters were just as enslaved as the slaves. And for for hundreds of years, he's saying, before Christ came, this was the state of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. He, He didn't come because we asked him. The gospel is not a gospel that man worked it out. It's not a gospel that humans were really clever and we worked a way in which God could kind of know. God decided God the Father took the initiative. We have a gospel. Christianity is a gospel about God is the only reason that any of us can do anything. Hallelujah. It's God who sent him. It's God who said, I'm not going to just ignore this wicked, evil population. I'm going to do something about it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's good news. That's the best news. God sent forth his son. I love that. This idea, God said, this word send here, it wasn't like just off you go son. Whenever it's used, it's, it's, it's this idea that the one who is sent is deeply connected with the sender. So there's a bit in the Acts where it talks about, I think it was Barnabas being sent out um, from Antioch. And it's the same idea. It's like he's part of us. He's an Antiochian and he, we're going to send him. You know, when we send people to Colchester, Lille, Helsinki, they're kind of us. It's that feel of they, they have our DNA and they're going. And it's like God sent his beautiful son. And if you're a parent here and you think about your protective instincts over your children, the idea of ever sending your kids into anything but the most blessed situation you could possibly engineer is, is, is so strange. It's the biggest mystery of them all. That God would send his only son, his beautiful son, Jesus Christ, to us. To us, wicked Evil people. That's what the Bible repeatedly says. God sent forth his son. He did it. It's his initiative from beginning to end. It will always be about him. I love that. He sent forth his son. He sent him. Born of woman, i.e. just like me and you. So we can't wag our finger at Jesus saying, well, he doesn't know the suffering I've been through. He was born of a woman. He lived a life of singleness. He lived a life of training as a carpenter. He would have had to go through the same difficulties that we went through. Born of a woman, but listen, born under the law. He was born in the same context. Now, this is the glorious difference. Jesus, for the first time in history and never to be repeated again, was the first man to ever be born under the law. And rather than being the worst thing, because I can't be good enough... He loved the law. He fulfilled the law. When it said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and we fail by the time we leave this hall, Jesus did it perfectly. Hallelujah. He was immaculate. He was spectacular. He was utterly different in every way when it said, do not cover. And we're like, oh, darn, I've done it already. That person's nice car. 
went from a nice thing. Ah, oh, you know, when we think, do not be jealous, do not be envious, do not be impatient. The list goes on. We're like, oh, Jesus was all these glory. He was, he was never those bad things. He was all the good things, basically. Amen? He was perfect. The law for him was not a heavy thing. It was not something he couldn't do. It was easy peasy, lemon squeezy, because he was sinless. And he's the only man. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're thinking, what's this thing about you know, Christianity? It is about the bold, outrageous, scandalous claim that Jesus Christ was and is God. God. Hallelujah. He's God. So the law for him was like, it's in my heart. I love it. And you can imagine all of heaven at last, after hundreds of years of these wallies on earth, just going, oh, I want to go. Suddenly, you know, I wonder if the angels were nervous when they heard the plan. Uh, he's going to be born of a woman. What? Gabriel's like, are you sure? That's bonkers. If he's born of a woman, maybe he'll somehow go wrong. You know, he's really going for it. Gabriel, I know, I know. He's literally, he's diving into this world of sin and death. But he didn't muck up, hallelujah. He was born of a woman. For him, the law was his delight. It wasn't, there was never any problem with the law. The law wasn't the problem, it was us. We were the ones that saw it and we couldn't do it. And I love it that Jesus delighted in it. It is the, the deepest delight of his heart is to be someone who's holy and who is righteous, who, who wants to do his father's will. It was never this thing of, oh, I better do it. Jesus delighted in it and he loved in it. But this is the amazing twist. Did he do it just to so that he would be like, na, 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 na. Wally's, see, it's possible. I love the next verse. He says, he says, though he, he was born under the law, look at this, so that what? He might rub it in our face. We, what? We, wicked, evil, law haters, God haters, self-obsessed narcissists, we, evil people, might receive adoption. <sighs> what? That was not expected. None of it was expected. You, know, you do realize that, by the way, don't you? Christianity is basically unexplainable. Just as a throwaway there. You know that problem, you're in the pub, you're talking to your mates, you're like, okay, so there was Garden of Eden, and there was a snake, and oh, I'm, I'm lost already. And that's because it does make sense, and it doesn't make sense. Every single doctrine of Christianity ends in mystery. All of them. And that's why, just as a church, you've just got to relax into that. Only by supernatural work of God of heaven does anyone believe. It's the only way. So you can, to be honest with you, do your best and try and be really impressive with explaining it. It's bonkers. In many ways, it makes sense in some ways and so much of it doesn't. Why would God send his beloved son? I do not know. I would never send Daisy or Lily or Poppy into any danger. I would do anything. I would literally give my life to avoid it. And yet he did it for you. Man, there's no better news you're ever going to hear. And it never gets old. In fact, it gets better and better and better. And it is the gospel like on any other. He gave his son, not just so he could live a perfect life, but to therefore give you adoption. Not just being justified in the law court, so you could be adopted. The warmth of adoption. I saw this post this week of this little girl. And a friend of ours had just adopted her. And she had a plaque. And it said, 662 days in foster care. Today, I've been adopted. And her parents were just like punched in the air. This little girl face was just glowing man this is relevant to the world we live in amen we're having thousands of syrian refugee kids arriving on our doorstep if ever there was a time where the gospel of adoption the gospel of grace is needed it is now 
Don't think this is just for you, although it is. It's for the world. Hallelujah. It is so practical, so relevant, so incredibly, incredibly what this world needs to hear. You might have had a pretty good parent. Well, great, bless you. But you know what? You need to know your dad more and more and more and more. And he is so committed. He is wildly committed. Can I say that, Lord? I hope so. He is wildly committed to you growing in knowing him and being loved by him and experiencing that love. You receive adoption. You do not earn it. You do not ask for it. You receive it. Hallelujah. It is given to you. It is outrageous. It is scandalous. It is completely Beyond comprehension, he gives you adoption. And what that means is, are you ready? You now are as loved by the Father as Jesus Christ. I don't know what to say. It sounds totally wrong, doesn't it? Yes, that's why you're scared to even nod. It does. It sounds crazy. You are as loved by the Father as Jesus. You are as listened to by the Father as Jesus. You are as righteous now, by the grace of God. So when we talk about living holy, it is not because it changes your, your identity. It's because out of your new identity, you need to live up to this glorious gift. The moment you become a Christian, you become part of the royal family. And royals live differently. Amen? Hallelujah. It's not because you have to. It's because you want to. You receive adoption. You receive adoption as son. It's, 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 it's like... Paul here is like, I cannot conceive of how a royal would choose to become a slave. We are free. But what I love this, it's as if, as if, as if this isn't enough. He then, then here in this final verse, he says, and because you are sons, now God has sent someone else. <laughs> what? You already sent your son and now you've sent someone else. The double sending of heaven. God has sent the spirit of his son. Into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know, whether you like it or not, Christianity is a, it is a, a, a gospel, a truth of deep emotion. You, you can't look at this and go, oh, that's interesting. It linguistically doesn't allow you to. Abba, Dad, my beloved Dad, can I call you? Yes, I can. I must call you that. If I don't call you that, I haven't got you. Oh Lord, save us from hard hearts. Save us from British cynicism. Save us from a gospel that is like here compared with what it should be. A black and white gospel when it's a beautiful, technicolor, glorious thing. Hallelujah. It's what he wants for us. You don't escape slavery by trying hard. You escape slavery daily by believing in faith who you now are. I cry, Abba, Father, there's a different person in you. He's there. If you're a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian, my deepest heart cry to you is, come to Jesus today, right now, today. Just say, I need you. That's all you have to say. It doesn't have to be long, complicated. It wasn't for me. I was an atheist. I just said, if you're there, God, prove it, basically. And in his grace and mercy, he heard my cry. Abba, Father, some of you, he wants to change how we parent. So it's not out of a drivenness. It's not out of a need thing. It's out of a deep understanding of his mercy and his grace. Abba, Father. I received the most wonderful prophecy from Sarah Simmons a little while ago. She had this vision, which I want to finish with. She said, 
I found myself in her, as God was speaking to her, in a really cozy kitchen, like a farmhouse kitchen, all homey and very warm. There was a sense of excitement in the air. There were pots cooking and a big oak table in the middle of the room being prepared for a feast. I saw the father. He was the one cooking and making the preparation. And as I looked at him, I realized the only way I could describe it was he was totally drunk with absolute joy. He was singing, he was laughing, he was dancing around the room, thoroughly enjoying himself. To the, he was so happy. And I, I laughed and I said to him, Dad, you're drunk. <laughs> and he smiled and he carried on singing to himself and happily moved around. And then I asked him, what are you so happy about? And he beamed at me with joyful tears in his eyes and he said, my kids are coming. And I realized he was drunk with love. He was absolutely besotted and so excited to be with us all together. I realized this is his perspective on Sunday morning, his anticipation of it. Something amazing about it was that I could sense his heart was so joyful to be with us. But not expecting it to be a family mealtime where everything was neat and contained. Instead, I could feel the powerful beating of his heart, longing to connect with each of his children around the table exactly where they were at, in honesty and with an absolute disregard for pretense. In fact, his joyful expectation was that we would all come in and be real and leave feeling loved, listened to, understood and more hopeful. He was longing to get in close to each one of us over this meal that was happening. This feast wasn't really about the food, actually. It was about him getting in as close as he could with his children and sharing his wisdom, his compassion, his comfort, bringing conviction and correction where needed in the, in the setting of deep care and intimacy. She goes on to talk about the fact that in that picture, we so often come in metaphorically dressed in almost like drab clothes, believing lies, allowing ourselves to functionally come back into a slavery. And it's in the picture, the father cracks down this sword on the table and he breaks those again. And he says, live, live in your identity. And what I love about this picture is because no doubt up until this point you've been thinking about yourself and that's right, individually yourself. But there was something in me I thought, I want us together to walk into what God's saying. That's the community aspect. That's so alien from what we're used to. You don't just sit next to someone. You can be a source, a reminder of the power of the gospel every single week. That's our heart as we have these breakthrough prayer meetings. Is that The biggest prayer, the starting point for prayer is a breakthrough in our understanding of our identity in Jesus. In terms of who we now are in Christ. And we have to hear it again and again. Because of who he is and what he's done, now I am this way and it will never change. Hallelujah. That's who we are. 